We are considering the role that God's given for men. And we want to move right on into it. We've looked at the fact that the man is a glory. Because God created him in his image and his likeness to take dominion over the natural creation. He's the head of the woman. He's the glory of God. And he's a leader. He's to lead his family in righteousness and holiness and toward heaven. Come to the third point, and our brother has just read to us a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 7. The man is a lover. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It is the balance of God's Word that leads us to perfection. It's not balance in any woman's opinion or any man's opinion or the world's opinion. It's the balance that God's Word creates. Now, the first point was the man's a glory, and the second point was the man's a leader. And some might begin to think that that means a man can just lord it over the woman. Oh, so it's so far from that in the Bible. Look at how the Bible arranges itself in Ephesians chapter 5. It addresses the wives first in verse 22, because without submission you can't have a marriage. You can have a marriage without love. It's not, it's not a good marriage. But you can't have a marriage at all without submission. It starts with wives. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord in verse 22. And it tells the woman that the husband, her husband is her head in verse 23, just like Christ is the head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. There's some comfort for her. Then it tells her in verse 24 that just like the church is subject unto Christ, so wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. This is the word of the Lord. This is the only way that marriage works right. Amen. Then it says husbands. Amen. Husbands, in spite of what I have just told the wives in the previous three verses, husbands love your wives. And then the standard that Paul holds husbands to is a rather high and lofty one. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Husbands are to be lovers. So the man is a lover. He is to love his wife. Though God created her second and put Him over her in the order of creation, though she failed in Eden, and He is to rule over her, and her desires are to be His desires, he is to love her, and then the standard is set. He's to love her like Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Has Jesus Christ done anything good for you? Has Jesus Christ been faithful and kind to you? Is Jesus Christ always looking out for our best interests? Is he tender? And great in compassion toward us. Is He merciful and loving kind? So we have a standard and it's a high one. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Did Jesus Christ give up some of His glory in order to take care of the woman? The church. Now it goes on to say, and I've taught this before, and I want every man to understand it, why the Bible's written like it is. If you were just to read verse 25 and have it explained the way most preachers explain it, the husband would end up being such a submissive, serving person in the relationship of marriage that it would not look like everything else that we have said. Because they look at the verse and they say, Jesus Christ laid down His life for His wife. Therefore, now where are we supposed to draw the line? Does that mean that a husband is supposed to give up every one of his desires for his wife? Not at all. Because that would contradict Genesis 3.16 that says her desires are to be his desires. It does say that Christ loved the church and we know he loved us greatly. And it says he was the savior of the body. He saved us from our sins. But then it goes on to tell us, and it's a motivation for men. It's a motivation to love your wife. It goes on to say this in verse 26. Here's why Christ died for the church. That He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it in all the measures that he did, including dying on the cross. Not just for our pleasure, not just for our good, not just for our eternal destiny, but for his own glory. Notice what it says here. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might present it to himself. And this whole passage is an exhortation and motivation to men to love your wives because it is in loving your wife that you will get the best wife. That's the point here. The point is not love your wives as Christ loved the church and grovel before her and give her everything she wants. Jesus Christ sits on the throne of heaven and do you know why He saved us? Not to be in subjection to us, but to have us come to heaven and praise Him for eternity. And when a man loves his wife the right way, she will praise him, adore him, love him, and follow him the rest of her life. And that's what the rest of this passage goes on to continue to say. Men love their own bodies, and there's a reason. They take good care of their own bodies, and a man who loves his wife loveth himself. I want you to understand this passage. It's not explained very clearly. I've heard it so many times that a husband ought to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and it's presented in such a way that the husband would give up all of his desires to cater to his wife. But that isn't the purpose of that statement. The purpose is, be sacrificial, give, cherish, nourish that wife, so that you can present to yourself and have the best wife. The motivation is to tell men, if you will love your wives, you will get far more out of them in the pleasure of marriage than not loving them. And it goes, it says that from verse 25 all the way down through verse 30. Because it says in verse 29, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. Verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Why do we love and take care of our bodies so our body can serve us and do us well? And a wife that is loved is the best wife. A wife that is not loved is a reluctant wife and it's not a very good relationship. So the exhortation here is to love your wife sacrificially, kindly, cherish her, which means to consider her an object of special affection, nourish her, provide for her to develop as a great woman, and in that loving, she will be the best wife possible for you. And so the way God has appealed to men in verses 25 through 29 is, husbands, if you love your wives, it's loving yourself because you're going to get the best wife out of loving you're not going to get the best wife out of trying to practice Genesis 3.16, 1 Corinthians 11.9, and all the authoritative passages of the New Testament. If you try that on your wife, you're going to have maybe a subject, but you won't have an adoring wife. If you want to present to yourself a glorious wife, you love her into it. You can't force her into it. No man alive can force a wife to be a great wife. You have to love her into it. If you try to force her into it, you will know whether it's in lovemaking or in breakfast making that your wife is doing it because she has to do it. And so Ephesians 5:25 through 29, that's what it means, that's its sense. Understand it. You cut your own nose off to spite your face if you do not love your wife. The man is a lover. Every woman should be able to handle verses 22 through 24 when she knows that God immediately takes up husbands in the very next verse and sets the standard of Jesus Christ loving the church. And I hope you understood what I just said. Jesus Christ did not love the church because he felt sorry for us. Jesus Christ loved the church so that he would have the most appreciative, thankful, praise-giving congregation for the rest of eternity because of what he did for us. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that in the ages to come, he might show his loving kindness toward us. That's why he loved us. He wants to shower us with blessings, not because he wants to be our servant, but because he wants us to be a praise-giving congregation that will please him for all of eternity. Remember, the Lord has made all things for himself, including his bride. And we did not pick a woman to marry her because we felt sorry for her. We picked a woman to marry her because we felt sorry for us. And if you love her, 
it will satisfy the sorrow that you had before you married her. If you don't love her, the sorrow just gets worse and deeper. Every married man knows exactly what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where our brother read. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll just be brief on it because we did spend a few minutes on it last Lord's Day. 1 Corinthians 7 is where the apostle tells us that to avoid fornication, every man and woman ought to be married and have their own wife or husband. It then says in verse 3 that a husband owes to his wife due benevolence and a wife owes to her husband due benevolence. Due benevolence are euphemistic terms for sex in the way that your spouse wants it, where he wants it, she wants it, how, when, and how often. That's due benevolence. You know, sometimes the Bible uses euphemistic language, and euphemistic language is cultured, good language to express something that is not generally talked about. Sometimes in the Bible, the Bible is less euphemistic than it is here in 1 Corinthians 7, but that's what the words do benevolence. It's due because the husband owes it to the wife and the wife owes it to the husband. It's called benevolence because it's the kindness of giving them sex the way they want it, where they want it, how they want it, and how often they want it. That's why it's called due benevolence. Verse 4, the wife hath not power of her own body. Remember, the wife doesn't have the right to control her own body, but to give it to the husband whenever he wants it. And likewise, the husband doesn't have power of his own body, but to give it to the wife in the way she wants it when she wants it. Verse 5, defraud ye not one the other. Don't interrupt those rules that I just presented unless you're going to do it by consent. That means both of you agree and you're going to give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Then come together quickly again, lest Satan tempt you for not having that regular due benevolence. But I want to come back to verse 3 because the point is the man is a lover. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Now look who the Lord puts first. The husband owes the wife. You know, it's a man who's not very learned about women. And it's a selfish man that would think that sex was only made for the man. Because here we have the plain Word of God that tells us, let the husband, here's a commandment for husbands, to be the lovers of their wives sexually. Let the husband render. Let him give the due benevolence that that wife wants. He's a lover, and this is the Word of God, and this is what it says about it. And it puts the woman's rights and needs first in this particular verse in the order that the apostle listed it. You say, does the order in the Bible matter? You bet it matters. Don't you remember from Genesis chapter 2 that the apostle could say the man was first formed, then Eve, and he was able to draw from that. We're able to draw from this by seeing the woman is not neglected. and But the point is not for the women today. The point's for the men. The man is a glory. The man is a leader. The man is a lover. You say, I thought my wife was just supposed to make love to me whenever I wanted it. Well, that's part of it. That's half the equation. And you're supposed to make love to your wife whenever she wants it. Where, how, and how often? This is the word of the Lord. Let it sink into both of your ears. You should have one for your duties toward her, and you should have one for her duties towards you. You can teach the whole word, and I'm going to preach the whole word, but it addresses us both. So all the men were to be lovers as well. You know, when you look in the book of the Song of Solomon, and every man wishes that his wife would read the Song of Solomon once a month, she does other things every month. She could read the Song of Solomon every month. And I'm not speaking for all men. I'm speaking in a general a generality. For those of you that don't think that way, I'm sorry for you. But every man wishes that his wife would read the Song of Solomon because he reads the Song of Solomon and he sees this aggressive, erotic woman. But men, if you want your wife to read the Song of Solomon and be the aggressive, erotic woman, why don't you be the aggressive, erotic man that the Song of Solomon describes? If you go into the Song of Solomon, you're not just going to find an aggressive, erotic woman, but a very erotic man, a man who loves his wife and praises her and draws out of her what she gives to him. He comes after her. Listen, she's the one that's stopping anyone from entering the room because her husband is such a great lover. That's in the Song of Solomon. Make sure that we do not slant the Word of God to protect selfish interests, but we preach the whole counsel. There is a loving man in the Song of Solomon that is more important to the whole book occurring than the woman. 
The woman is a follower. A woman will follow and will respond, and you will not be able to outgive her. You are a dreamer if you were to ever follow the Bible. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 19. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 19. Any woman can whip any man in the matter that I just said, as long as the man is acting like the man in the book of the Song of Solomon. As long as the man is acting like the man, Ephesians 5, 25 through 29, no problem. A cry of uncle will be rising from all over the Piedmont area as men practice the Song of Solomon, Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 19. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Men, this is a commandment to you and to me, and notice all the commands in the verse. Let her be. That is not describing something, that's commanding something. That's an order. That's something you can choose to do. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. A, a beautiful little species of deer that, was, that were kept for pets and that were considered very tender and delicate, as anybody who's seen a small deer understands, let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Treat her very specially. This is not describing something. This is an imperative verb. Let her be. Men, love is a choice. Your wife is as beautiful as you choose to let her be. Your wife's lovemaking is as good as you choose to let it be. Your wife's breasts are enough if you choose to let that be. Look at the let be's here. These are commands for men. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times. And be thou ravished always with her love. Her love, her lovemaking, her companionship, her friendship, it's all a choice. The man's a lover. And this is how a man's a lover and is a contented lover. A contented husband. Not a frustrated, discontented, eyes in every place husband. It's a choice. It's a command. Do it. Proverbs 5.19. The man's a lover. If a woman knows that she is the loving hind in the pleasant row of her husband and the only one, if a woman knows that her breasts satisfy her husband at all times, if a woman knows that her husband is ravished always with her love, he's a happy man. Enough. The man is a teacher. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Can the wicked even get benefits if they hear the Word of God and practice some of these sections? Absolutely. This is the wisdom of the universe. But to a child of God who practices it all, near heaven on earth can be obtained, no matter circumstances, because your heart will be so blessed. We cheat ourselves when we cheat and compromise in the Word of God. We're moving on to point number four. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, we want to look at the fact that the man is a teacher. The man's a glory, the man's a leader, the man's a lover, the man is a teacher. Ephesians 6, 4, and ye fathers, I want you to know that God knows the word parents, and God knows the word mothers. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Here fathers are told to provide the instruction and the training that the Lord would want for all of a man's children. That's what nurture and admonition is. The instruction, the warning advice, the good counsel, the teaching that the Lord would want a young man to have, a young woman to have, fathers are to be the primary teacher. Now this is again where I get a little upset because our generation... In our society, it's the mother taking the children to Sunday school. It's the mother being the spiritual or religious leader in most homes, but that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches fathers. Fathers! 
The Lord knows the other words. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Don't be angry. Don't be a browbeater. Don't be overbearing. Don't be too critical. Don't provoke your children to wrath. But, as opposed to that approach to life, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Give them the support, the instruction, the training, and the discipleship of following the Lord in the way that He would want you to do it. That is being a teacher right there. The man is a teacher. Of course, as I mentioned last Sunday, the woman can have a subordinate role under the man and have her own laws and rules to give children. But that isn't the emphasis. The emphasis in God's Word is upon fathers doing it. And a woman loves a man who teaches her children and spends time with her children. Men, I'll tell you another secret. I already told you one secret in verse in my second point that you might need to go home and pull a dictionary on, but I'll tell you a second one. You love a woman's children. If you want the fastest way to a woman's soul is to love her children. When a woman sees a man sitting down and taking the time to carefully, lovingly, patiently instruct children that a woman gave birth to, kindly, gently, patiently, remembering their frame that they're just little children, she loves that man. Because that man is taking care of the children she's brought into this earth. And she has a bond to them no man can fully understand. And I'm just telling you a secret. The fastest way to a woman's heart is love those children. Well, it's not the fastest. The fastest way is Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. But it's the second fastest way. When a woman gets to sit by and see a husband lovingly take care of a child's problems and give them instruction patiently, kindly, did some study on it, it opens his heart to them, can apologize, can confess his own shortcomings, can use his own experiences, loves that child, promises that child to always take care of it. When a woman sees that being done for her young that she's brought into this world, she'll love that man. Let that man be short, impatient, yell, curse, blast, throw, beat. And if your wife submits, it's only because I'm your pastor. Because I bring the Word of God to bear on her so she submits out of the fear of the Lord to you. You are hurting her soul so bad when you hurt her children, you big brute. Come and pick on me. I ain't much, but I'll fight a little harder than your children will. The man's a teacher. And he's a gentle and a kind and a gracious teacher. Because he knows the balance of mercy and truth. You know what the Bible says David was like in leading Israel? Did he lead by force? There was no man that could have commanded the hearts of all the men in that nation than David. But David did not lead by force. David led by example and mercy. When 200 soldiers couldn't go on past a certain river because they were worn out, and the 400 went on with him, or I may have got the numbers reversed, forgive me. When he came back, he said, we're going to divvy up all the spoil of this war, even to those that couldn't make it all the way with us. Do you remember that mercy? Amen. The rest of them wanted to stone him on the spot. They couldn't stand such a kind man. But he made it a law in Israel. He was merciful. He led by mercy. The man's a teacher. It doesn't take that much. It doesn't... Recently I spoke to you from Matthew chapter 25 and I told you about the return on a talent. The way you turn five talents into ten talents is not overnight. It's not in a month. It's not in a year. It's over a long period of time with a little bit of interest every day. There's wisdom in that. It's a little bit. Don't ever be overwhelmed or intimidated. You're a fearful man when you do that. You're a rebellious man. It's just a little bit every day, but it's a little bit done right. It's a little bit done according to the Word of God. It's a little bit done. Just do a little bit every day. Every moment that you think about what a big thing you ought to do to be a great father, you are cheating your family because it is too much and you will fail by falling short of your goal. I'm an expert at it. I know how to set goals high. I know how to set goals so high you can't achieve them. Don't do it. A little bit of interest every day. 
The man's a teacher. It only takes a little bit every day. And brethren, when, when women become the teachers, children, families, churches, and society are perverted and turned upside down. It's not the way it ought to be. A woman is not capable of being a teacher. She does not see the world the right way to be a teacher. God said that. She's to be taught at home. If a woman has any questions, she's got a husband at home that can answer them. 1 Corinthians 14. A man has the right view of the world. He doesn't have an emotional, sentimental, deceived, turned upside down, motherly view of it. He's got a manly, God-oriented view of it. He's not worrying about the poor little child scab. He's worrying about the child's soul and the future as a man. It's a terrible travesty when women become teachers. Men are to be the teachers. This is what the Bible says. It's always been that way, and that is the emphasis throughout the Bible. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. Let's not even go there. Go to Psalm 34. I'm, I'm running out of time. I have to keep moving. You had a passage read to you by Brother Matthew from Joel chapter 1, and it was addressed to... The men of Israel. The men of Israel. to teach The fathers. Have we heard from our fathers? We, sh- we must teach our children that they can teach their children and they another generation to come. Four generations of a family are maintained by the men teaching the men below them and the children the fear of the Lord. It's men that are the teachers. And I want to emphasize that in the homes if you're not teaching your children, what in the world are you alive for? We have to be teachers. It's so much easier just to provide a paycheck. It's so much easier just to show up. It's so much easier to sit at the dinner table and not do anything. But we must teach them. And even if it's just a little bit every day, a little bit every day over time, we'll take five talents and turn it into ten. To put it in common terms, it'll take ten thousand and turn it into twenty thousand. A little bit done every day. Psalm 34 And verse 11 is David, and he says these words, Come, ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's not mama, it's not grandmama that does the teaching. It's fathers. Come, my children, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Can you imagine the stories David could tell? My children, I was once out keeping the sheep, and a lion appeared. It must have been 700 pounds. I had heard it roaring. They had told me that roar could be heard five to eight miles in the night. I had heard it roaring before, but it came upon me. It looked like it was 700 pounds. I was only 170 at the time. But I called in the name of the Lord, and I ran to meet it. And we had a little wrestling match, and I tore its beard off. I tore its beard off, and I choked the life out of it with my own bare hands. The Lord was with me, children. Come here. Do you want to hear another story? Oh, Who wouldn't have liked to have heard those stories? The next one, you know what the next one was about, don't you? A bear. Then a nine foot nine inch basketball player. Goliath. Nine feet nine inches tall. Come here, my children. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Don't go to mama. Do you know what most dads do? Go to mama if you want to ask a question about church. Go to mama if you want to ask a question about the Bible. No, I want you. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Brother Stephen read Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8 to you. That, along with Joel, both passages teach four generations being taught by men. Men. We've already used the verse Genesis 18, 19. Abraham commanded his children and his household. Was he the husband or the wife? Was he the father or the mother? Abraham. I know Abraham. He didn't say, I know Abraham and Sarah. I know Abraham. He will. He will. It's men that are the teachers. Men, you need to teach your children just a little bit every day. Just a little bit every day. As for me and my house, my house? Why didn't he say as for us and our house? Because he was a leader and he was the teacher. As for me and my house. You say, that's selfish. That's godly. Oh, don't we all love Joshua? I don't care what you think about it. I love it because God loved Joshua. And he put that in the Bible and all God's men spoke that way. They didn't say us, our, and we. They said me, my, and mine. 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the way it is. That's the way God made it. It's not because I'm trying to be selfish because I'm a man. I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God. That's the way it is. Love it. Submit to it, wives and men. Fulfill your role or your wife is in serious pain because you are in charge and you're not doing your job. A wife is in serious pain. And she has to call upon the name of the Lord to deliver her from a lazy husband as much as David had to call upon the name of the Lord to deliver him from a lion because the trouble is coming for a family where the father does not take the lead and teach the children. The trouble is coming for sure. Unless God does a miracle. And He has not promised to do that when we're lazy, when we know better. Every man should be a spiritual man in the Word of God so that he can rightly teach his wife. Every man had better find husbands for his daughters that are going to be able to answer their questions, her questions, and to be a godly leader and a teacher for that family. This is important. Not everyone that's a member of this church is qualified to be a husband or a wife. They may live and die being single. Even though there may be spouses in this church, being a member of this church is not nearly good enough. If you think that's good enough, you are sorry, sorry. You are pitiful. If you are not godly, gracious, spiritually oriented, loving Christ and know the Bible, you're not fit to be married. The man's a teacher. The man's a protector. Why do I even want to look at it except to give you this point? The man's a protector. It tells us that men weren't to, be, weren't to leave their house for the first year of marriage because they were to stay at home and cheer up their wife that they had taken. But after that one year was over, they could go off to war, they could go off to business, but they are to be the providers. I read, we're dealing with protectors at the moment, I read about Abraham, when Lot, his nephew, was taken captive, he armed 318 of his trained servants, and I would say that's a pretty good protector. He had 318 trained servants at home, and he was able to go and pursue that band and defeat four kings and deliver his nephew and all their possessions again with the Lord's blessing, but he had the means at his disposal because he was a protector. But brethren, I want to remind you that you're the protector of the spiritual interests of your family, and that's more important than you protecting them from the boogeyman. It's protecting their souls. A wise man knows that evil communications corrupt good manners. That's a man who's a protector. He reads 1 Corinthians 15.33. The Lord gets a hold of him. He reads the words, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And he makes decisions about the music his family can listen to, the television they can watch, and all the other influences of the media, the schooling, the friends, the neighborhood, all the other things that can lead it, influence a child. He protects his family from that corruption that will ruin his children. A godly man protects his children by only letting them marry in the Lord and marrying to godly, virtuous, spiritual spouses. Just like Abraham did for Isaac. Just like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, it gives a man the protecting authority that he can keep his daughter single if he chooses to. 1 Corinthians 7, 36 through 38. He protects his vulnerable wife by not letting her listen to preachers in his absence. There is no need for a wife to sit at home and listen to tapes and search the internet to learn spiritually and try to grow past her husband. That is a corruption of God's order. She's already proven that she is not a godly woman by the fact that she has time to turn the knob on. Because if she was practicing what I preached last Sunday, she wouldn't have time to sit down, take her cup of tea, and listen to the radio while her husband's working. Nowhere in the Bible is that taught. If a wife wants to learn anything at home, it doesn't say, turn on the radio and listen for Jimmy. It says, ask your husband when he gets home from work. Every woman that I have ever seen do that is twisted. All you have to do is talk to her for a few minutes, and she's twisted because she has not had a man filter the doctrine that she is being fed, and she has become a silly woman taken advantage of by creeps that creep into houses, and that is what 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7 tells us. They creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins. The man's a protector. He protects 
his family from all these different things. He protects them from bad marriages. He protects them from bad influences. He protects his own wife. He protects them from school. He, when he makes a schooling choice, he realizes he, ha- he has to put forth greater or less effort to protect them from the undermining influences of whatever schooling choice he makes. The man's a provider. He's charged with business. He's supposed to stay at home for that first year, but the Bible tells us that the man is a provider, which means he needs to have a life before he has a wife. In Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 27, it tells a man to establish his work in the field, then build your house. There's an order for things, and it's a common sense order, but the Bible reminds us of it. The Bible says this about men. If a man provide not for his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. If a man does not provide for his family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. 1 Timothy chapter 5. A good man. A good man is such a provider that he's laying up money for his children and grandchildren. Proverbs 13.22 tells a good man leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. That's the word of the Lord. It's not mine. It's the Lord's. You can take that up with him. You know, this idea of driving around with a bumper sticker on your car saying, I'm enjoying my children's inheritance, that person can laugh about that through eternity in hell. Because God said they should be leaving something for their children. And if godly families left something for their children and grandchildren and did it just for a few generations, would those godly families be better off? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If your parents end up infirmed and without anything, it is your job to take care of them. First Timothy chapter 5. But that's not God's order for things. Parents should have already provided for themselves and leaving something to their children. Because Paul said... Children ought not to lay up for their parents, but parents for their children. This is the word of the Lord. The man is a manager. The man's a manager. The man has to see the big picture. The woman sees the little picture. That's what supervisors do. They see the smaller picture. But the man's a manager. He's got to look at the whole scheme of things, where we go to church, what we're going to do, how these children are going to be raised, and then he asks his wife to implement that on a daily basis. That's how a man and a wife work together. But the man's supposed to see the big picture. He's the manager. In every one of our couples retreats, I tell the men that get marry a wife, you're the problem resolution manager. That means when there's a problem in the marriage, it's your job to resolve it because you're in charge. And listen, someone's got to resolve problems, and it's the man that ought to do it. The wife shouldn't have to come and try to do it. You're the one in authority. You're the one that chose her. You're the one that likes me when I preach about you being the head of the wife and the glory of God. We'll show your glory by resolving your problems. Sit your wife down and say, we've got this little thing going on between us. It's not right. It's not what ought to happen in Christian families. Here's what we ought to be doing. I'm sorry for my role in it, and I hope you're sorry for your role in it, but it's not going to happen anymore. Is that, is that clear? Are we settled on that? Aren't we excited that we're now going to serve the Lord with that little, without that little thing between us? Right. That's problem resolution management. You say, but what if she talks back? Well, the reminder of the Word of God. Tell her, wait till I'm finished. Tell it to her a little stronger than that. Do whatever you have to do to be the leader and be the manager of your home and especially your marriage. Listen, you're responsible for your marriage. If you're unhappy with your marriage, your fault. You say, but it's my wife's fault. She doesn't make me happy anymore. Well, then you're not treating your wife, the, your wife the right way for her to make you happy. The Bible puts you in charge. You resolve the problems. You correct what's wrong, what's lacking. It is an axiom. That means a fundamental and basic law that cannot be overthrown. It is an axiom of life that dysfunctional problems in every, any home or any life can always be traced back to a man. Every time one of you call me with some problem in immediate extended families, it is so easy to sit down on a piece of paper and trace it back to some man that didn't do his job. I never trace it back to a woman. Ever. The woman's not in charge. The man's the head. Why would I trace it? Listen, if there's a problem in a company, is it because that little surf that's working on the machine isn't doing his job right? Or is it because someone in charge of that company isn't putting the orders down from the top right? I don't go blame the little surf at the machine. I blame the men at the top. And when it comes to your family, it's the man in charge. You like being the MIC, don't you? 
Well, if you're the MIC, then you've got to resolve the problems. And I'm telling you right now, man, I'm laying on you the heaviest burden I've hit so far. I told you, you, the glory of God. Yes, I did. But now it's time to tell you all the problems are your fault. All the problems are your fault. And if you say, no, it's the waste, that's because you haven't taught her well enough. You haven't trained her well enough. You haven't explained to her well enough what you would like her to be doing instead of what she is doing. Oh, you mean, are you telling me that authority brings responsibilities with it? I am. And you have made a great deduction. The Bible tells men to dwell with their weaker vessel wife according to knowledge and honor. He's a manager. He understands that his wife is going to have some shortcomings. He lives with her in a way that he doesn't get bitter. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. If he can't manage his wife, then he needs to get help and will get her managed. One way or another, she can be managed. When John the Baptist came restoring relationships, he went right after the fathers because they're the ones in charge of a family. Brethren, let's be managers and manage our families for their happiness. The glory of God, the furtherance of the truth, and the adorning of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. (coughs) The man's a judge. The man can make better judgments than the wife. He, looks, he, has a, he has a longer-term perspective, and he knows men, and a woman doesn't know men at all. And I'm especially thinking right now of the, peop, of the spouses that your children marry. Make sure that you are exercising your authority as a judge in that family. Isaac told Jacob who he could and could not marry. Don't you dare marry anyone in this land. You go home and get one of our relatives. He was such a judge, as I told you already from Numbers chapter 30, that God would allow a man to disannul a vow that a woman might make to the Lord himself. Jacob on his deathbed, what a judge he was, wasn't he? Jacob on his deathbed had his 12 sons standing around him, and he went through them one by one, and he told them what they had done in their lives and told them that it was going to affect their families forever. He was a judge. You all need to make good judges. Mercy and truth. You want a simple rule? Mercy and truth. Mercy and truth. Don't ever exalt one over the other. Balance them both. The Word of God will teach you that if you'll read it. The man's a priest. Don't get shaken that I'm calling a man a priest. A priest is an intercessor between someone and God. Men are priests. We believe in a patriarchal society. We believe in a patriarchal Bible. We believe that fathers lead families spiritually. And I'm not using the priest in a literal sense. I'm just using it to get your attention. A godly man is a priest. He's the head of the woman. He's under Christ. He's between Christ and the woman when it comes to their practical working out of their relationship with each other in the world. He leads about a sister, which is a euphemism for a marriage. He instructs his wife at home. If she has any questions, she's to come home and ask her husband. He's a priest. He answers her questions, and she obtains the law of God at his mouth if he knows his Bible. Genesis chapter 35. I love this priest. Genesis chapter 35. This priest is Jacob. God said unto Jacob, verse 1, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all who were with him. See, this is a man. This is a godly man. Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise, now it's plural, let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods, and they all went and had a family worship service, but Jacob led it because the relationship with God was between God and Jacob. I have already taught enough that no one should have any questions at all in your mind because I taught very plainly last Sunday that a woman ought to have, should have, and needs to have her personal relationship with God. But I will tell you something. You had better keep your husband in a close relationship with God for the benefit of your family. Because it's men's relationship with God that bless a family. Or that family will end sooner than it otherwise should. He's the primary teacher, as we've already seen. It's great patriarchs like Noah and Abraham that ought to be our examples. 
When I say priest, I'm thinking of a man like Job. And it's not that a woman can't do this. But the Bible wants men to do it. God wants men to do it. Do you remember Job? The Bible tells us in Job chapter 1 and verse 5 what a godly... You know how I'm, I'm using the word priest. A spiritual leader of his family. Whenever his children would have a birthday party, and they all and it was a big family, and they had lots of money, you know it was a pre- pretty big party. When his children would have a birthday party, what did Job do early the next morning? He would rise up early and offer a sacrifice and beg God to forgive them that perchance in the levity of the party they might have cursed God in their hearts. This did Job continually. What a man! That's what I mean by being a priest. When was the last time you prayed intercessorily for your family? When did you ask God to have mercy upon your family? As the head of that family. Your wife, your children, their children, their spouses. Job 1 is a beautiful... Beautiful example for us. May we be like that. When I look in the Bible, I see God singling out five men. Since I can't remember them right now, can you help me remember these five men that were intercessors? They are listed as great men whom God spared large numbers of people because of their faithfulness. Daniel. Moses. Samuel. Job. Noah. There's the five. Five great men. If you go through any one of their lives, you will realize that either families, cities, or nations were spared the judgment of God because of the righteousness of one of those five men. And God can spare a family for the righteousness of a man. By example, from the Word of God. God's looking for one man to stand in the gap for His land, for families. The man's a pillar. My final point. The man's a pillar. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 82. Psalm 11. I'm sorry for changing my mind, but there's reasons for it. It's called time management. Psalm 11. The man is a pillar. A pillar is a big, strong column or post that holds things up. And a man's a pillar. He's to be the one that holds things up. He holds the family up. See, do you know, when I say that, don't you have a part of you that is repeating the society? It's a woman that holds the family up? Oh no. How can a woman hold a family up? That is a hilarious joke. The man holds the family up. Look through the Bible. The man holds the family up. And it's when a, man, when a man falls down the job or doesn't do his job that a family starts to break down. That's why I said you can always trace a problem back to a father that didn't do his job completely. The man's a pillar. It's great men that make great families. I'm not discounting women. I want all of you women to be great, and I said lots of good things about you last Lord's Day. I was particularly nice. I taught you the whole counsel of God and I balanced it with the Word of God as well as I could. But it's great men that make great families. It's great men that make great cities. It's great men that make great nations. But especially, it's great men that make great churches. It's from, a man, it's from among the men that God chooses and ordains His bishops and deacons for service. When Paul came to the church of Jerusalem, he didn't see Phoebe or anybody else. He saw Peter, James, and John, and he knew that they were pillars in that church. A glorious man like David. Now that's a pillar that you want to have around. He's in favor with God and men. He can lead his family. He can lead his wife. In Psalm 11 and verse 3, look at this verse. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now you say we've used, we've used that foundations before for different things. I agree. If the foundation, any foundation is destroyed, whatever is resting on it, what will it do? It will fall down. But if a family is resting on a godly father and that father falls down, the family is going to be destroyed if that foundation is taken away. Look at Psalm 75. I want you to see a couple of references and how God understands that men are pillars. Rulers are pillars. Leaders are pillars. And, and men are leaders and rulers. So they're pillars. They're pillars of their family. It is terrible when a society becomes matriarchal. When they measure everything by the women and the mothers. We want to measure things by the men and the fathers. 
Psalm 75 and verse 3, the earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. That's David. That's David talking. I'll bear up the pillars of our nation. Our nation is crumbling right now because guess who had been king? Saul, then Ishbosheth for two years. Look at the first one. You think, are you sure about that interpretation? Okay, let's try it. Psalm 75, verse 1. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks. For that thy name is near, thy wondrous works declare. David speaking, when I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. They hadn't had upright judgment for a long time. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. Verse 4, I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly, and to the wicked, lift not up the horn. That means shut your mouth. He's bearing up the pillars of it. Look at Psalm 82 and verse 5. Psalm 82 and verse 5. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate pillar. But David was a pillar and Jesus is known as the son of David. Your family should be known in the generations to come as being, as you being the foundation of it. Your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren should remember a God-fearing man that did the right things and led that family. You be the pillars. Don't put that burden on your wife. God didn't intend for her to have that burden. Psalm 82 and verse 5. They know not. Let me start with verse 1. So you know what we're talking about. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Who are the gods? The rulers. God judges among the rulers. Verse 5. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. Those foundations there are the pillars of godly leadership. And the whole earth is trembling because of this. And he's referring, of course, to Israel. But let's not let a family of ours tremble because the pillars broke down and fell. And there wasn't support for the family. And let's not let that happen to our church. When the Bible says we ought to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, let's make sure that the men are at the front of that battle. Brethren, there we are. God made you a glory. He made you a leader. He made you a teacher. He made you a lover. He made you a provider. He made you a protector. He made you a priest. He made you a manager and He made you a pillar. Support your family. Build it up. Uphold it. Be the solid foundation that it can always rely on. Dad will always do right. No matter what the world thinks or says, God has spoken. And that settles it on this subject. If you men fail your duty, not only will you be a very unhappy man and give an account to it for the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll destroy a woman, your children, and your grandchildren. You'll also destroy and hurt this church by not pulling your own weight by being a godly man. You're under Christ, you're over the woman. Let's show our image and likeness of God by using our authority well. The Bible will make you great as a man. It is primarily a man's book because women are to get their answers from their husbands is why I say that. It's the book of the man of God. That doesn't mean women can't read it. It didn't say that. I said it's primarily a man's book. But you know what? That book can only help you if you read it, believe it, meditate upon it, and obey it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.